to open your Bibles, we have two actually texts today. The first is in Romans chapter 12, and then in Philippians chapter 2. Both are familiar passages, and I hope will help us as we continue our study in the matter of ambition. In Romans 12, the first two verses, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As I said, we've been looking at the matter of ambition. This is our sixth week looking at it, seeking to understand and arrive at a biblical understanding of ambition. Among the things that we've done, uh, the approach that we have taken, is to look at ambition in light of creation, fall, and redemption. We've been doing that for several weeks now. But we saw last week that when it comes to the matter of redemption, we need to understand that it begins with who we are rather than what we do. What we tend to focus on is what we do. And when we do that, in part, among other things, we find ourselves looking for approval, that we're doing something in order to get approval. But if we have been redeemed by the grace of God, then in Jesus Christ we have been accepted. The the approval is already there. We are God's people. And so God's view of redemption is to work with, begin working with who we are rather than what we do. Redemption is about transforming who we are. That's thus what we read in Romans 12, the emphasis on transforming our thinking, the renewing of our minds. I would argue that in some ways, what we do before we become Christians and after we become Christians may not be radically different. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Well, before you become a Christian, you eat and drink. After you become a Christian, you eat and drink. And so there is a similarity between what you did before and what you do after. But our thinking, I think, behind what we do may in fact be radically different. This, I think, is true in the area of ambition. One author has recently noted, Christianity Christianity does not simply offer a few ideas that are neatly compatible with modern assumptions about reason. The Christian faith does not simply or even mainly propose a few additional facts about the world. Rather, belief in the Christian God invites a new way to understand everything. It is a new way of thinking. But, for all I've just said, let's be clear about this. What we do is not unimportant or disconnected from how we think. Again, to refer to another author, the practices of everyday life shape our imagination, and in turn our imaginative vision of the good life guides what we choose to do. So, Please listen to this. When practices change, eventually beliefs change as well. 
so that it is not simply a matter of being in your head. And I, with our text here in Romans 12, I think oftentimes the temptation to think it's all about my thinking, that my thinking needs to change. But in fact, how does your thinking change? Is it merely a cognitive process? No, in fact, oftentimes our practices will change our beliefs. Last week, we continued to look at ambition under redemption. We saw that redemption, as I said, begins with who we are, not what we do or try to accomplish. We tend to focus on action rather than being. Ambition begins with knowing who we are in Jesus Christ, not what it is that he wants us to do. In redemption, God is seeking to change us into the image of his Son. And a part of the way that he does this is by shaping us or reshaping us and our view of ambition. Ambition from a Christian perspective is not something that God gives us as a package deal to say, here, now that you're my child, here is the proper ambition. God is in the process of redeeming us. He is in the process of redeeming our view of ambition. As we've seen earlier, the problem isn't ambition per se, to say ambition's wrong, get rid of it. The problem is in a fallen world we have twisted ambition. And God in redemption is seeking to untwist it and to reshape it into what is a correct view of ambition. And just to remind you, or perhaps some of you weren't here, we saw that ambition existed in the garden, in creation. Ambition is not something that is you know, fallen or something that is twisted. It was there before it did get twisted, and now in redemption it is being reshaped by the grace of God. Last week we saw that God shapes us by dealing with our ambition in one of three ways. Um, just to review, uh, delayed ambition developed ambition or denied ambition. Delayed ambition. To be human is to have delayed ambition because we live in a fallen world. Things don't work in a timely way the way that we think they should. But to be a child of God is to have delayed ambitions as well because we are living in a world that is being redeemed. We are people who are being redeemed and oftentimes in God's process it takes time. Um, if you think back through scripture, and I did this last week in the sermon, consider the people of God who had to wait. Abraham and Sarah, who waited 25 years for Isaac. All the way up through someone like the Apostle Paul, who Ziv has been reading to us about from Acts chapter 9. He is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. As soon as he is saved, he starts preaching. He has to escape uh, in a basket over the city wall of Damascus. But it will be 14 years before Paul's ministry will begin. It's like, I thought, I thought I was the guy. I thought, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Why do I have to wait? Well, oftentimes, this is what God has us do. And we saw that waiting purifies our ambition. It cultivates patience. And waiting redefines our definition of productivity. See, we're thinking in terms of what we can do. And if we haven't done X amount, we feel that somehow we have not been successful. We have not done what God wants us to do. But by waiting, we come to see that God is seeking to transform us 
And that is far more important than anything that we could accomplish. And so waiting redefines our definition of productivity. In a world that worships efficiency, God tends to be very inefficient in the way that he works in our lives. Then there is developed ambition. As I said, God loves ambition. It brings him glory as he works through our desires to fulfill his purposes. He doesn't need us, but amazingly God uses us. He positions us to be fruitful and he works in our lives, turning our desires to his ends and developing our ambitions in accordance with his will. And in the process, he is changing us. He is redeeming us. And then there is denied ambition. To be human is to have denied ambition because we live in a fallen world, in a broken world. But to be a child of God may also mean that we would have denied ambitions because we live in a world and we are persons who are being redeemed. When God denies our ambitions, it is not ultimately a punishment or a penalty of some kind. It is, in fact, the gracious work of a loving father defining or redefining the path that we are to walk. As I said last week, God puts fences up along our path that we may resent because we want to go this way or we want to go that way. But these fences are because God loves us. And he wants us to continue to move down the path that he has laid for us. One more thing and then we will get into something new today. I said this at the end of the sermon last week. Ambition is so important that God undertakes a lifelong project in us, forming and reshaping the ambitions that exalt him and bring us delight. We need to understand this. Ambition is not wrong. If it were, then why would God spend our entire lifetime seeking to reshape our ambitions? It is important to him. We don't always see this, though. And in part because faith and belief weakens at certain points, and we fail to recognize that he is in control, that he knows best, that he loves us, that he is at work in us, and that he wants us to be ambitious. And this requires transformation, what we find in Romans chapter 12. But again, please do not forget that practices also shape our beliefs. We should not imagine that we can continue to do as we did or as others do in the culture around us and think it will not affect us. Um, I debated whether or not to bring this up, but... Um, in the, in the February 4th issue of Sports Illustrated, there was an article, Does God Care Who Wins the Super Bowl? It's written by someone named Mark Oppenheimer. And he was on an hour-long interview with Hugh Hewitt, a conservative radio talk show host. And um, Hugh Hewitt was outraged by what this man had to say. And spent the first 15 minutes just sort of proving and just getting it all out, this man is not a believer. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He's a Jew. He's not a very good Jew. Um, but, you know, he's left of center. Uh, actually, the man described himself as left of center, and uh, Hugh Hewitt called him far left. Um, but the man made, I think, 
fascinating points. In fact, I found myself at the end of it saying, I agree with Mark Oppenheimer. I do not agree with Hugh Hewitt. He asked some important questions. Here he is interviewing someone with the, uh, there's a Christian group for uh, Christian athletes. What about concussions and broken bones? The abuse meted out to the bodies God gave us, Mark asked Mr. D. You know, D says, football is football. You can get hurt walking across the street. Then Oppenheimer says, this is the mantra of these ministries. Sports are self-contained moral universes. It's okay to break bones if it's for sports. Football can't be subjected to the moral claims that pertain to other aspects of life. And then later on he said, uh, this is Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, I spent a lot of time on the question in my article of what kind of values are being taught in the game. Are we teaching people that honesty, that love for the opponent, that breaking bread together in fellowship, that treating each other as human beings is something that the game is teaching? And you're sidestepping all that to stay in the theological realm of one soul. In fact, what Hugh Hewitt was saying, you're saying it's bad for the soul, and Oppenheimer is saying, well, it's actually bad for your body, you know, that you're, you're doing damage. But he brought something up, and that is, as athletes continue, because a professional athlete has probably been in athletics his whole life, he reaches a certain point where he thinks the rules no longer apply to him. This is also true, by the way, they're finding of women athletes. And I think what it is, is that practice shapes belief. Your actions shape what you believe. And if you keep doing this, if you keep abusing other people, is that not going to shape the way you look at other people? I mean, actions shape beliefs. We would prefer that beliefs shape actions, and that's the way it should be, but like it or not, if we keep doing something over and over again, it will change the way that we believe or look at something. If our practices are the same as those around us, our beliefs will become the same as those around us. And this is true in the realm of ambition as well. Not to go too far afield, but in many ways one could argue that the dynamic or the structure that is used for many churches today has much more in common with the corporate world than it does with scripture. Practices shape beliefs. What the Bible has to say about ambition, in fact, is quite different from what surrounds us. And if you would, at this point, turn to Philippians chapter 2, our second text. And what I want to do in the rest of the sermon is to look at five paradoxes with regard to ambition. Five paradoxes in the biblical view of ambition. Things that are counterintuitive, that they don't make sense. It, it doesn't make sense to us, particularly when we think of ambition. We will look at these five paradoxes in light of what Paul writes here in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let me just stop there for a minute. You may remember that I said that we find the word ambition used seven times in the New Testament. Twice it is positive. The other five it is negative. It's selfish ambition. This is one of those five places. Okay? 
So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Just, again, uh, for, self, for full disclosure, I'm leaning quite heavily on Dave Harvey's book on rescuing ambition. I found it to be so helpful in this area. Paradox number one. The greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. The greatest fulfillment is found in emptiness. This almost sounds Zen-like in some ways. But when Paul tells the Philippians, and us as well, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he doesn't leave us to wonder, well, I wonder what that means. It's like, what would Jesus do? No. Let this mind be in you, and this is the mind that Jesus had. And it's found in verses 6, 7, and 8 who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What does Paul mean by what he writes here, being in the form of God? Why doesn't he simply say that Jesus was God? It would certainly solve a lot of theological debates that have come down through the centuries. Well, let's begin with the word being, and we went through this when we studied Philippians. We might think that when he says being in the form of God, that being comes from the verb to be. It does not. It comes from the verb to exist. So that he had existence as God. It describes that which a person in his or her very essence has and what cannot be changed. That person, no matter what the circumstances are, this is who they are. It's a person's essence. So what we find here is existing in the form of God. That's what Paul writes. Well, what about the word form? And by the way, you may have noticed that I read form. Uh, but in the NIV, uh, it has appearance. If you look at the bottom, it has a footnote that it is form. And I think that is the word that should be used. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words that are used for form. The first is the word morphe, which means that which does not change. It is the essential form, does not change. Schema is the second word, and this is the outward form, which from time to time may in fact change. Okay. Any human being always has the morphe, if you wish, of being a human being. But their schema, the scheme of things, if you wish, is changing. So, baby, infant, toddler, preteen, teenager, young adult, adult, and so on it goes. Nothing can take away the fact that they are human. No deficiency, no disease, no deterioration, no disfigurement can take away from the fact that that person is human. So what Paul writes about Jesus Christ is that his existence and his form were unchanging. He was God. 
And what, what did Christ do? I mean, I can't be God, so what is it that Paul wants me to do? He said, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. And the King James says, he made himself of no reputation. You will note that this stands in contrast to what we started at in verse number three, vain conceit, empty glory, or selfish ambition. To be God does not mean that one is acquisitive, grasping and seizing. But God, by definition, is one who gives himself. And this is what Jesus did. He gave himself, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus did not come into the world as Lord, as King, but as servant. A person without advantages, rights, or privileges. Let's just be honest, brutally honest here. This goes beyond our ability to understand. How could God become man, making himself nothing, and still be God? I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to Timothy. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus did come as a human being. And what did he give up? In 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, he gave up the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He gave up his independent authority. We read in John chapter 5, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is the mind that was in Christ Jesus. This is the mind that should be in us. And hopefully we begin to understand that the road to fulfillment comes by emptying ourselves of personal glory. It's not to be about us. We are to be willing to empty ourselves and our ambitions be rescued in the process. Paradox two. It is wrong to think first about rights. Paul writes of Jesus, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What does he mean by this? The King James has robbery. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The verb form points to seizing, to grabbing, to grasping something, taking it away. And why would someone grasp or take away? It is for personal advantage. It is for that person. I want this. I will take it. Paul is telling the Philippians that part of being in the form of God is seen in the fact that Jesus did not think he needed to take advantage of the fact that he was God. He was God. It wasn't something he was trying to grab or take away. He was God. But it wasn't for personal advantage. Who he was could not be taken away. This is important because there are those who would deny that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. But he, in fact, was willing to give up what he had and come and live among us. 
This is important because this is something we can imitate. This is something that we can follow him in his doing. The problem with ambition, oftentimes, is that we think first about ourselves and our rights. Particularly when we are wronged. I do want to be clear that rights are important. They do matter. When one person violates the rights of another, that is injustice. And that is oppression. And while we want, or we want, should want to be known as the defenders of the rights of others, we are not supposed to be known as people who fight for our rights because of our ambition. Our ambition should not be to protect our personal rights. We should be willing, in fact, to walk away from such things. Paradox number three. It's really something to be nothing. These headings I'm getting, by the way, from Mr. Harvey. Jesus could have come as king, as I said earlier. No one could have disputed his claim. But what does Paul tell us? He took the form of a servant. As I said earlier, he did not enter as Lord, but as servant. Slave, adulos in Greek. One author has noted, in a fundamental sense, slavery involves the absence of rights especially the right to determine the course of one's life and the use of one's energies. What is denied the slave is the freedom of action and freedom of movement. He cannot do as he wishes or go where he wishes. The faculty of free choice and the power of refusal are denied to him. And this is what Paul has in mind when he speaks of the humility of Christ. By the way, I don't know if you were wondering about this. I remember that I was as I went through Philippians I said there are two words in Greek for form, morphe and schema. The one does not change, the other one does. So when we come to this, that he took on the form of a servant, which word do you think he would use? The essential, morphe, that's the way you are, or the schema, the outward form that is changing all the time? It is, in fact, morphe. The essential nature of Jesus Christ is to be a servant. See, he did not come down here and play and act as though he was a servant. He is, in fact, a servant. And everyone who calls Jesus Lord is to follow him and is to be called a servant. This stands in stark contrast to the way the passage begins. If you look at it, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paradox number four. When it comes to self-evaluation, don't trust what you see. In light of what I just read in verse number four, one might be tempted to think that you're never supposed to think about yourself. That being humble means I never think about myself. But that's not what Paul says, is it? We are to consider others as more significant than ourselves. This assumes that, in fact, we are thinking about ourselves. Paul doesn't say, stop thinking about yourselves. He says that we should consider others better than ourselves. And we should look not only to our own interests, we should, but also to the interests of others. The ability to act in humility 
is clearly linked to an awareness of our own interests. We read earlier Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me read now verse number 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Taken together, what this tells us is that the problem for Christians is not self-awareness. It's like, stop thinking about yourself. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. Rather, it is the wrong kind of self-awareness that gets us in trouble. And the key to correct self-awareness is humility. When we consider others better, ourselves better than others, then our self-awareness is off and it needs to be corrected. So, humility is a key to self-awareness. But there's something else. And if you look at it, if you look at verse number four, it is there. You just have to sort of look at it sort of backwards. If we are to look at the interests of others, then they should be looking at our interests as well. This means that other people should be a good reflection or they should be able to reflect to us who we are. They should be able to say to us, um, there's some things that need to be corrected. There's some things that are not quite right. This gets really tricky. But this is where humility is the key. Our brothers and sisters are to be mirrors to us. They are to be able to say to us, if we will allow them to, I think there's some things that need to be corrected. They can help us with our motives, not only our actions. It seems that in the world we have people go around sort of as a spiritual police, you know, correcting people when they do something wrong, but even with our motives. Now, the only way they will know our motives is if we open up and say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And again, I think that is a very scary proposition. What this means, in part, is that we must admit that our motives are not above question. Even when we are doing good things. Service can be self-giving, but can also be a cover for selfish ambition. And we need to ask ourselves and allow others to ask us, why does this, whatever it may be, seem so important? Why does it matter so much to you? But again, as scary as this is, it's something we really need to consider, particularly in light of verse number four. And now the last paradox. And in many ways, the first four were important. I'm not going to say they're not. But I think number five is the linchpin. True humility promotes great ambition. What is humility? It's found in our passage, and I've talked about it, but what is humility? If all you had were these verses to help you define humility, how would you define humility? That would be hard because we already have these preconceived notions about what a humble person is like and what humility is like. Let me suggest something for you to think about. The humility of Jesus Christ is seen in his actions. 
we tend to think of humility as an attitude. Paul sees it here in terms of actions. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. We tend to think of humility as something that pulls you back. Humility says, no, don't go there. That, that, you shouldn't be doing that. And it's possible that that is the case. But as Paul sees humility, humility is a driving force. It is Christ's humility that causes him to do these things. It does not restrain him. It defines his actions. Something that happened at the beginning of the 20th century, and perhaps much earlier, just became aware of it then, and that is that humility came to be redefined or seen in a new light. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who I seem to be referring to a lot lately, appealed to a return for a return to the old humility. He wrote, The old humility was a spur that prevented a man from stopping, not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. For the old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which will make him stop working altogether. I think that humility... First of all, it's not a virtue, I think, that our culture prizes, for the most part. We sort of like it, but we don't want to be humble. Okay, But that has come into the church, and so our notion of humility is to say, I'm worthless, I'm dirt, I'm beneath contempt, and I shouldn't do anything, I should not have any ambition. And I think Paul would say, what are you talking about? You should be thinking the way that Christ was. And he is marked by humility, and the humility caused him to do the things that he did. When we become too humble to be ambitious, we have stopped becoming humble. That is not humility. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's certainly not biblical. It is not Christ-like humility. Humility should never be an excuse for inactivity. Our humility should harness our ambition, but it should not hinder it. If you are too humble to be ambitious, then you, I'm sorry, you do not understand ambition. And by the way, I'm not speaking harshly of you. I speak as much to myself as I do to you today. When we read about the humility of Christ, we should see a pattern one that is marked by activity. Let me remind you of what Paul wrote. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made human, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility does not kill ambition. It is humility that gives life to our ambition. And God is in the process of redeeming us. That means reshaping us and bringing humility into our lives as one of our characteristics. He's also redeeming our ambition, reshaping the twisted ambition and the two The two activities are not disconnected. 
our humility and our ambition are being redeemed. And the two go together. We should not think for a moment, oh, I'm not going to have any ambition because I am a humble person. Jesus was humble. And he came and he did. And I would say he was ambitious. He came to do the Father's will. I said at the beginning of the sermon that our actions, our practices, affect our beliefs. If we do not follow the example of Jesus in his humility, in his emptying himself, in his taking on the form of a servant, how can we begin to imagine that our beliefs will be correct? If we do not follow his actions, then why would our thinking be like his? Why would we, as Paul says, have this mind that was in Christ Jesus? Why would we? It is in our actions, our practices, they begin to shape our beliefs. And I hope this is something you'll think about in the days to come. I want to close by finishing out this passage. Because if you look in the NIV and a lot of the newer translations, this is not written in the form of prose, but as a poem. And it is believed to actually be lyrics to one of the earliest hymns in the church. We read that Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then Paul continues... Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would confess freely that that we are oftentimes confused about this business of ambition. Something about it just doesn't sound right. And, and when we're feeling particularly spiritual or we think we imagine that we are, we think that in our humility we should not have ambition. We see in the coming of Jesus that not only did he give us life that we might have life, but he gave us an example. One who emptied himself. One who humbled himself. But one who did. One who acted. Who did what you wanted him to do. One who had ambition. And if we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, what we imagine to be humility cannot, it should not hinder us. It should not cause us to sit on the sidelines and think that we are unworthy. We are. But that we, there's nothing we should do. We are your people. We are accepted in Christ Jesus. You've given us gifts. You've given us opportunities. May we by your grace Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Have his mindset and follow him in his actions. I think for many of us, require a work of your spirit and your grace to get us to see humility as we should, rather than seeing it as something that stops us.
and certainly by your spirit to see ambition as we should. I thank you that we could gather on this day and we could come together and worship you. We pray for Ben and Becca as they travel that you would give them safety. Pray for those that are sick and not with us today that you would touch them and restore their health. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.